I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And today, first thing that we're going to lead off with is Farfetch just released their Q2 earnings. We had predicted on the show back in, when did this come out? July 27th. Um, full disclosure, I bought a lot of shares of Farfetch. Uh, we were talking about StockX and how StockX had a big beat. Um, they're not a public company, but they released a huge you know, Q2 infographic on how well StockX was doing. And, and we'd kind of seen some other of these like niche used consignment marketplaces like eBay uh, do very well. And so we thought that uh, Farfetch would, would also do well. Here is a clip from three weeks ago. Uh, and, and, and what we spoke about then, and, and we're going to talk more about what Farfetch just, just released, honestly, minutes ago. So StockX and Goat are both private, but uh, Farfetch and The Real Real are the kind of more holistic luxury goods marketplaces, somewhat similar to them, but, um, you know, the, like designer shoes and handbags and these other kinds of, you know, product lines. StockX just came out with this information. They said May and June were our two best months ever. Now, this is a growing company, so y you should hopefully want to see them having their best month ever as kind of like a, uh, you know, a repeat trend, right? Um, that you should have huge growth, right? Like that, oh, these companies are huge growth. You're doing a billion dollars in GMV. You know, you should be having huge growth anyway. But they are clearly saying that their their marketplace is doing very well, even better than what they would have hoped to do if Corona hadn't happened, right? So what that leads me to say is, hmm. I wonder if the same or similar thing is happening to Farfetch and Real Real, and I would imagine that you probably got a pretty good chance that they would say something similar. Okay, so you know my new nickname is going to be Alex Making Money Moazed because let's look at Farfetch's stock right now. It's up over six percent currently in aftermarket trading. Farfetch blew out their uh, Q2 earnings. So let's take a few high-level takeaways here. They had a 43% beat on earnings. So um, they had a very strong beat on earnings. So they lost less money than the market predicted. They're still losing money, but they predicted that they will break even in 2021. They had a 74% growth in revenue to $365 million for the quarter. This is the uh, Chairman and CEO, founder, Jose, he said, second quarter 2020 was record-breaking for Farfetch. Digital platform GMV was an all-time high of $651 million. We attracted more than half a million new consumers, our highest ever, and brands and retailers leaned in to offer the broadest selection of luxury fashion we have ever seen on the marketplace. I would say that's a pretty good quarter for Farfetch. They're in plat. They're in the ETF. You can see them at the, at the bottom of the ticker. And so, you know, it makes sense to me why Farfetch is doing well. They did a little bit better than how the Real Real did. Uh, also makes sense. Farfetch is just bigger than Real Real. Real Real is still yeah, kind of right on the edge of small, even though they are roughly a billion dollar market cap. It's still a smaller uh, platform stock in the grand scheme of public platforms. 
Farfetch doing really well. Makes sense. Good for Farfetch. I think you're, I mean, you've seen this trend in Etsy as I was talking about towards the end of that snippet from a few weeks ago. We're definitely seeing trends here, you know, in a COVID environment of, of, of certain areas of platforms that, you know, that are, that are doing actually doing very well and thriving. Um, not just the massive ones like the FAMGAs, right? But, but these are kind of a little bit more niche, single digit billion dollar market cap companies, um, which are just, just doing really, really well. So if you did happen to invest in Farfetch because of the show, or if you didn't, but like the show, please, uh, click that like button, that subscribe button, uh, the share button, all the engagement buttons. Um, and what you'll like on the set, let's see if I got this right. This is the Japanese book behind me. This is the Chinese book behind me. And then this is the Korean book. So we're, we're giving some Asia book love back here behind my head. Um, and then we've got English book up front, obviously. Um, I think we were supposed to have a Russia book. I don't know if that ever came out. I think we're also supposed to have like a hmm, Vietnamese book, I think. I don't really know what ever happened to those. But anyway, um, Platt's doing phenomenally well. We had Kara on. We, Farfetch is doing well. What other platforms are are, are doing surprisingly uh, well, given what's going on here? Oh, a little company called Airbnb. So Airbnb is reportedly, it's so funny how this happens. Airbnb confidentially files for an IPO in August and then everyone knows about it. So I don't know why they bother even saying confidential, but they're planning to go public in, you know, in the fall once we come back from Labor Day. Um, basically, the story with Airbnb is, and if you remember um, these private equity firms, Silver Lake and Sixth Street, you know, they took some options in Airbnb. They gave them like a billion dollars in, in kind of debt with some warrants. Really great decision, I think, on their part, as, as we see with this IPO. I think the IPO will do very well. Uh, why will the IPO do very well? Well, you have an asset light business. Yeah, the asset lights business just got torpedoed by COVID. But when we look at the landscape of travel and hospitality and, and what's going on with COVID and everything, the asset heavy travel and hospitality businesses have absolutely gotten pummeled. In the short-term real estate rental space, right? You know, a lot of the the, the big high-flying names were companies like Sonder, Lyric, and a couple others. Many of those companies are basically going out of business. Uh, these companies they own leases, right? They are the signor on the leases, and they have a very asset-heavy business model, um, as we've seen with Booking.com bouncing back very strongly relative to the rest of the travel industry. Also in Platt and just these asset light versus asset heavy businesses, the asset light businesses, predominantly platform businesses. Marriott has kind of like an asset light business because they have franchisees and, and they're kind of more just like a service provider-ish kind of business. The asset light businesses have done much better and Airbnb has been able to capture long-term bookings. I actually spoke about this probably in April that you were going to see booking Expedia and a lot of the other big platform players try to move aggressively into long-term rentals, VRBO, I think owned by Expedia, right? So Expedia also in plat. Airbnb, I guess, has been able to hold on to that business, right? They've been able to convert producer community that have all these rental properties 
into now providing long-term rentals because there's a huge exodus outside of uh, people leaving cities, myself included. Um, so this is an article on Bloomberg about Airbnb's Q2 performance. Their revenue fell to $335 million in the period ending June 30th. Uh, that's down at least 67% from the more than $1 billion the company reported in the same period last year. So they had $842 million in Q1. So they had in Q2 of 2019, they had a billion dollars in revenue. It's revenue, not GMV. Um, revenue from Q2 of 2019. So now they're down to 335. Drastic, drastic change. Okay. I'm not saying that Airbnb is fine and their business is dandy. But what I am saying is that I think all things considered, they are weathering the storm quite well and they can trim cost. They've been doing layoffs. They've needed to do layoffs. So they've been trimming cost. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of fluff, okay, in, in that PL. Okay. So it's very healthy, a little fat, lots of fat in that PL that you can easily trim out. There's a key stat that Airbnb tracks, which is uh, do they have a million rooms booked in a day? And they just hit that again recently. On July 8th, guests booked more than 1 million nights of future stays at Airbnb listings around the world, the company said. It was the first time to hit that level since March 3rd. Clearly, you know, that to me is a very big milestone. Million bookings one day. They hadn't done that since March 3rd, four months. Okay, that was um, a grind for them, but I think they're starting to see, and in other parts of the world that are, I mean, no one's really returning to normalcy here, but um, it's a global business. I mean, you have just in general, probably a global exodus outside of, out of people leaving cities and of having remote work. And if you can have remote work and you don't want to be in the city, and especially if you're younger and you don't have kids, if you have less dependencies, it's going to be much easier if you can work remotely to do an Airbnb somewhere for a month. Uh, or two or three, right? And you can kind of move around, uh, if you have, especially if you have furnished apartments that had been had meant to be rented for a weekend. What's stopping you from renting that out for a few weeks or a month or a couple months? And and so I think you're starting to see that change. Obviously, Airbnb's inventory in the cities, you know that that business is really hurting, and I, I wouldn't expect that to come back anytime soon. The the rentals in cities, but I think um, especially. Uh, like tier two cities, tier three cities that are more spread out. It's like a city, but it's also kind of suburbs and you don't have as many of these issues with just being in a highly dense, high density, high densely populated area, um, which mega cities like New York City, unfortunately, have just been really devastated by. And I, I don't think are going to be the same for a very long time. Uh, pains me to say it. I I spent... Um, majority of my career in Manhattan, or we have a, our headquarters is uh, right in in downtown Manhattan. We paid a lot of money for that office space, and um, and we enjoyed it we, a lot. And it's just you know all that has gone away so fast, and it's uh, it's just really unfortunate to see. Uh, I don't think the the uh, the uh, political leadership there has helped out much in 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 doing it but they are in a tough time and i would say they've certainly exacerbated some of the reasons why um 
so many people have left and are probably leaving for a long period of time. But either way, it's unfortunate to see and it's going to be a tough situation for these big cities. Anyway, I feel good about the Airbnb IPO. I think if you buy into this IPO, we'll see where it's priced at. We'll see if they do the the Dutch auction, kind of the direct listing, um, or if if they uh, kind of do the more traditional route. But I think long term, right, as Airbnb business, Airbnb's business is able to get that short term rental volume back. Uh, you know, that pr- provides a pretty good growth trajectory, assuming they're, you know, if there is a relapse in the winter, then that timeline obviously gets elongated. But eventually, long term, over the next three to five years, as Airbnb's short term business comes back and they can return to a 30 plus billion dollar valuation, where, um, you know, with these private equity firms, they're valued at 18. So, you know, there's, there's, I think, Relatively good upside. We'll see where the thing gets priced, but long term, I I do like the the makings of of what an Airbnb IPO could could provide for investors, and they would obviously be in plat uh, uh, for the next rebalance. So we will see we will see how they handle that IPO. Something that I had just kind of prospected or you know thrown out there is to say why doesn't walmart just buy instacart you know we were looking in in covid uh peak march april time frame we saw the instacart and walmart digital grocery delivery numbers basically flip-flop walmart at 50 percent of total uh, digital grocery orders and instacart had about 25 percent now flip-flop where Instacart went to about 50% digital grocery market share and Walmart down to 25-30% digital grocery market share. Not a good thing for Walmart. And you know, I think our reason or our thinking for that was that Walmart has linear supply. It's all of their own stores. Instacart has a marketplace supply. They use all these other grocery stores. When you have huge influx of demand, which we had in that crazy couple months, I mean, everything's crazy now, but those really crazy couple months of COVID, Instacart was in the best position to handle that crazy influx of demand because they had marketplace supply. And Walmart stores were just you know, cleaned out. They couldn't do it. They couldn't meet the demand in the linear model. So now we're seeing Walmart and Instacart partner for same-day U.S. delivery for grocery. They're doing a pilot partnership in four markets in California and Oklahoma. Walmart is basically letting you buy their stuff through Instacart. It's a big win for Instacart. Big win for Instacart. Instacart's already, you know, Aldi, Target, Costco, Kroger. If I'm Walmart, you got to buy Instacart. I mean, it's pretty simple. Walmart doesn't want to go through another platform. I mean, they're doing it just because they just couldn't hold out. It's kind of crazy, but I think... You know, is this so much as Walmart capitulating to Instacart or is this Walmart testing the waters with Instacart and then just buying them? Walmart gets marketplaces. The Walmart marketplace we have covered many times over. I, I could see, uh, I, I would not be surprised and I could see that. I mean, Instacart had a valuation of like $16 billion. Walmart has a relatively, you know, low multiple compared to others, but they've got a $373 billion market cap. And you got, you know, Instacart, I don't think they probably have 50% of digital grocery delivery anymore. That was like all time peak numbers for them. But 
even if they have 35 or 40 percent uh, market share and if Walmart if they go back up to 30 or 35 percent literally you buy the company for 25 billion dollars and you have 70 percent of the digital grocery market yeah sign me up I mean you have so much demand through instacart that the other Walmart competitors in the linear grocery business, Aldi and Kroger and these, they just, you know, I think Instacart is too big for those big grocers to leave. So, you know, you, you don't want to buy Instacart too soon, honestly, for Walmart. You don't want to buy them too soon that you could have a mutiny from the biggest suppliers on the platform. You know, Instacart needs to have such a commanding role in the market that you buy them and your supply is locked in. So I think, you know, Walmart buying them would actually help that um, because now between the two players, you're going to have at least 70% of, of that digital grocery demand market. So I don't have any insider info. I'm just looking at this like anyone else, but uh, it would make sense to me. Walmart gets marketplaces and um, we saw... We saw their linear grocery business, which has helped them so much. Um, people have been using pickup and store for grocery, and that's boosted their 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 digital growth numbers. That's been like the lightning rod catalyst growth driver for them. Um, so we've seen that work. Why not double down and and bring marketplace model to grocery? Um, that would make sense to me. But see if they would agree with me or not. In not so good news, the Pinterest. Uh, platform company public in Platt, um, having some uh, having a tough week. Their former COO, um, Francois Roger, don't know if I butchered that or not, came out with a candid uh, retrospective and inside perspective uh, on the issues that Pinterest has. And basically, you know, what she says is that she was the only female executive at the company. She was brought in pre-IPO. She was there for like two years and then they fired her. The reasons why she says that she was fired is because they have a gender equality problem. Not had, but has, present tense. Um, this, she was fired, I think this past spring. And now I... Is, is coming out with this now, I guess, took some time to, you know, let the dust settle, I guess. She said she did not sign an NDA. So um, big mistake on their part for not giving her a settlement package that she couldn't refuse, which came with it with an NDA. But, you know, what is the story of Pinterest? I mean, when you look at Pinterest board, you've got Bessemer on the board. You've got big time names at big time VC firms on the board. This is a, a, a scathing kind of insider perspective from COO. She was like number two at, at the time at, at the company um, underneath Ben, the CEO and founder. My takeaway from reading this was she talks about how she would provide feedback and, you know, it could be honest, harsh feedback. And basically, she started to get excluded from meetings. 
Um, and, and, and she would provide feedback or she'd try to push and improve and address problems and, and try to fix them. And then, and thanking her for her candor, they basically shut her out of the meetings. She was the only female in the room. All the guys then just kind of wrote her off and, and like stereotyped her and uh, discredited her opinion. Um, and then nothing actually got fixed or solved and all this kind of stuff. And I believe her. She provides recommendations in here. I was reading these recommendations and, you know, you can see them here. Stop making grandiose statements without taking meaningful action. Recognize and dismantle the system of gender bias. Take effective, proactive steps to root out discrimination. Focus on retention, not just hiring. Stop making decisions in ad hoc, opaque ways. Embrace candor and compassionate leadership. Hold the board of directors accountable. Don't use NDAs to buy silence. What was not addressed in here is, you know, everyone talks about culture, having an inclusive workplace, right? You know, making sure that that you have good gender diversity, demographic, racial diversity, all of these, right? Diversity. She even says it in the article. It starts at the top. And I'd agree with you, Francois. But what she didn't say in the recommendations Sounds to me like Pinterest needs a new CEO. If it starts at the top, and, and she made a comment in here about, uh, she was talking in this blog post about how the board, the board were just kind of like yes men uh, and women. You know, they, they didn't challenge the, the action plans that the executive team was putting in front of them. They kind of just nodded. And she was like, hmm. She, you know, she said she made a comment to Ben like, that's weird. You know, I was at Square, Francois, and like they would really grill me. And, and Ben made a comment back to her being like, oh, I picked everyone on the board. And so the interesting thing, even though Square actually similarly has that very powerful like founder, uh, you know, CEO in Jack Dorsey. Similarly, Ben is that founder CEO. He's got like 20 votes for his sh- for for the class B shares versus everyone else's shares. He has like super voting power. To me, the real challenge that Francois had here at Pinterest was what do you do? when the founder and CEO is not a good CEO. Well, you know, outside of getting fired, I don't really know. And I think she was in a very difficult position. But, you know, from reading this, right, she's saying, hey, I would deliver feedback and try to fix problems. And I was actually taken out of meetings. Anyone who was taking her out of the meetings the CEO was taking her out of the meetings. He's also the head of product. And she said that she would, he took her out of, he took her out of the product meetings. So like everything in this article, if you go read this article, read through the article. And as you read through the article, think to yourself, hmm, is Ben the ultimate problem at this company, right? If, if these problems are going on and you read through her thing, if you replace Ben and you get the right CEO in there who wants to promote diversity of thought and executives, right? Who wants to make sure that all of the executives are at the table and having a voice and contributing, right? Who has a board that challenges the executives and wants to make sure that, you know, the 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 strategy is really stress tested and spot on and all these kinds of things, right, that she's talking about. To me, it comes back to the CEO. And many of these things, right, whether it's um Getting the right culture. If you're a, in a traditional business and you want to do, you know, what what Applico does, which is help traditional businesses 
I invest partner with other platform startups and like go create these awesome platform new business models and and business units. The CEO has to drive it, right? We won't work with an enterprise unless the CEO is driving it. And that's not an ego thing. That's just a reality thing, right? You got these big companies and for these, um, you know, game changing initiatives or systemic cultural problems or these any kind of major like company, um, you know, uh, company changing or, or material company uh, decisions or problems. CEO has to drive it. Um, it doesn't mean the CEO needs to actually lead it and do it all, but the CEO needs to be the driving force and vision behind what either what the problem is or what the opportunity is, the challenge and how to solve it. And then put his or her support behind, you know, the point person and then, and then the other support people that are working to execute on whatever the task is at hand. And so if you read through Francois's post, I think it's a good read. It's, you know, 15 minute blog post here. Think about that, right? How much of this is really, you know, do all the executives in Pinterest, are, 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 are they really the problem? Maybe some of them are. She singles out the CFO pretty good. Maybe they are. But what is the real problem or what is the real catalyst for change? And it sounds like, now there's two sides to every story, but it sounds like the CEO and founder of Pinterest is the problem and should be replaced. Because if you take it at face value, what she's saying, these are real problems, right? You want to have a culture of diversity, of, of making sure all the best people are contributing, pushing each other, challenging each other. It's the only way you can actually build a great business. I'll, I'll, I'll preface it that there's two sides to every story, but it was interesting to me, like none of these recommendations here pin the blame back on Ben. That was the weird thing to me. It just felt so obvious to me that all these, these are real big issues she's talking about. CEO didn't fix them. He actually fired you. So kind of sounds like he's the problem, right? I don't know. I'd be curious to get you know, anyone else that reads this, your perspective on, on this article, if, if you would agree or you see it similarly, or when you read this, you're like, yeah, uh, if this company ever has any shot at changing, you need a different CEO. I mean, there are a spectrum to these, uh, you know, founder CEOs that, that are able to grow with the company and, and you know, and manage a, a business with over what, 10,000 people in it, something like that. Um, you know, we saw one end of the extreme of that with Uber and Travis, crazy cultural problems, but it is a very difficult thing, right? To be there in the early to mid stages. And then, and then now you have this big company and, and you've had certain executives that you've been in the trenches with for years and it's difficult stuff to do. Um, doesn't mean, Hey, you know, maybe Ben doesn't need to exit the business entirely. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not saying the guy is trying to do something, you know, uh, egregiously or, 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 or is like grossly negligent or, or deliberately trying to hurt the business that all of his net worth is tied up in, right? What I'm saying is as a CEO, doesn't sound like he's a good CEO from this post. Could he be like a really good head of product? Probably wouldn't want to do that ego, but, or could he be like a good chairman? 
Or if you look at what the Google founders did, Larry and Sergey, right? Like they kind of just worked on like cool stealth projects, right? But they let Eric Schmidt and now Sundar, you know, run the business as that professional CEO. Interesting things to think about. But again, you want to know who really needs to make that decision unless you want to have an all-out war, all-out war and have the board kick you out. Like we saw with Uber. Um you know, it's tough. How is it, you'd have to get Ben to basically kind of like relinquish his power as CEO. That's a that's an uphill battle. I don't know how you win that battle. I would say Pinterest though could probably execute much better on the opportunities that they have, right? Like where are they with e-commerce? If I want to be critical of Pinterest, right? Like, um, how are you letting Instagram beat you with shopping? How is that happening? Right? Instagram, shopping, commerce, huge thing for Facebook now, huge priority. Where is Pinterest in that? Why haven't they done this? Like, why haven't, why aren't they leading the charge? Why aren't you hearing about Pinterest? Uh, leading the charge with commerce and, and onboarding third-party sellers and merchants. And no, you haven't, you don't hear any of that. So you can, I think there is, you know, if you, if you do take a step back and you look at Pinterest just strategically where the business is and, and where me as an outsider would like to see it, I, I would say that you do see what Francois is talking about with these issues with culture that do then plague your ability to execute and capture these new opportunities like commerce, which I, I, I'm not too impressed with where they are on that. So we'll see. Uh, last topic, you know, we couldn't have a good winner take all session without, without a little China rumble. Senators urge U.S. Justice Department to probe TikTok. Oh, and Zoom. So, uh, this was, man, back in June or July, started talking about the issues with China's control over TikTok and other tech monopolies. We've spoken about that topic for, I don't know, since the beginning of the show over a year ago. Um, but what we were also talking about over the past month or two is that if, if TikTok is in hot water, Zoom should be in hot water. And we've spoken about Zoom's entire product and engineering team being based, guess where? Oh, in China. We actually got um, flamed by Chinese bots. These are human bots, but they're, they're bots. Humans, though. On, so we, we made a video, uh, or we, we took a highlight clip where I was talking about, you know, Zoom having... There's some blog post that, that, I, that had a nice like headline. It was like American head Chinese body or something like that. And, and it was on this theme that Zoom has like US-based sales and marketing, but all the product and engineering is based in China. And if you remember like a month ago, Zoom kicked off these uh, Chinese users who, who were, I think were in the US or Hong Kong or they had left China. Hundreds of participants that were in these uh, like webinar Zoom meetings. And the Chinese government went to um, Zoom, you know, engineers and product people in China and said, you got you to gotta stop these meetings from happening. We want you to ban these accounts. And Zoom did it. 
And then it blew up in the news and Zoom apologized and they issued press releases on their website apologizing and saying, we have work to do. We're sorry. We, we messed this up. We shouldn't have done this. Anyway, that was the video clip that we posted. And then it started getting some traction. It got like five or 10,000 views. And then we started to get flamed by all of these pro-China, anti-US, like calling me a liar and fake news all these comments um, on the video and uh, in multiple places, YouTube, but really in TikTok. That's an irony. Um, so what I was, you know, what I've spoken about since then is that China has a whole army of influencers, human influencers. It's got to be hundreds of thousands of people that literally all they do is go on social media platforms um, TikTok, but also YouTube, Twitter. Twitter's been banning people. Facebook just banned a bunch of content, you know, a bunch of US owned social media platforms and obviously the Chinese owned ones too, to influence not, not, not people in China's opinion, but to influence people outside of China opinion about China, right? It's a massive coordinated effort. I give the Chinese credit because it's genius. It's, it's not illegal. But it is a, a legitimate, systemic, like, this is a major initiative. There are hundreds of thousands of people that do this every day as their job. Okay. They post comments on other content to influence people's perception about that content. So that content is negative about China and the CCP. And then the comments are pro. And, and they're, they're there to influence the opinion of viewers to have you think as the viewer that, you know, that video is fake or to discredit the, the video. And I know these people are human because they would make comments like, oh, you know, I touch my hair, which I do. And that means I'm a liar. Literally one of the comments in broken English, by the way. So it was written in broken English. And I was like, oh, he touches his hair, which means he's lying. Literally. These are the comments. So anyway, long story short. Zoom, for all the same reasons that TikTok has issues, right? Um, privacy, national security issues, da, 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 right? Zoom has a little bit better edge on that in the sense that technically they're a U.S. company, but the founder is from China. He's a Chinese guy, came over to the U.S., which is fine. But because the founder is Chinese, he started all the product engineering efforts in China. And that's where they built the whole the whole team it's in China. And that means all the servers are in China. That means all your Zoom calls go through Chinese servers. We've spoken about this for months on the show. So for the same reasons that TikTok is in hot water, data, security, privacy, Zoom should be also in hot water. That's why the, the show we had a, you know, a few weeks ago was American Head, Chinese Body. And, and I think this is going to be the real problem on the Microsoft TikTok acquisition. How do you transfer product and engineering outside of China? You got a thousand people or more, engineers, product people, they know the code, they're building the product. How do you transfer that outside of the country in, in anything less than three years? I just don't know how you do it. I don't know how Microsoft does it. I think it's fraught for huge execution risk. And 
on the surface, I like the deal, but I don't like the deal the more I think about it and how what you need to do to pull this off. I don't think you can do it um, in a year. No way. No way. Can you exodus, say, a thousand product and engineering people who are based in China and move all that, the infrastructure, all your you know, architecture, all that to U.S. servers and get a U.S.-based or let's just say not U.S., non-China-based product and engineering team. I, I think there's zero chance that you can actually pull off a transition like that in one year on such a huge product, code base, engineering effort, whether it's TikTok or Zoom. I just don't know how you do it. <clears throat> and if you do do it, the um the product will suffer the quality su- will suffer right like the rollout won't go well you know it just it won't be as fast or you'll have latency issues or it'll just crash like there will be problems if you try to do it in a year cuz you're going to cut corners and it just uh <clears throat> it's a big problem so i don't know you know what does zoom do i think both of these companies need to look at m&a actually um like if i'm microsoft and i'm buying tiktok i'd buy triller why would i buy triller I don't even really care as much about the IP. Maybe, no, I no, no, I take that back. Why would I buy Triller? Or if I'm Zoom, why would I buy another video conferencing company? It's just basically like an aqua hire because I need the team and I might use their product or my product or I might use some of both of the IP or something like that. But I just need the team. <clears throat> Where do you get the team? It's kind of like an aqua hire, but of like, another multi-billion dollar company. So unless you do that, and I think as Zoom comes into hot water here, when you think about why these companies, TikTok, WeChat, and I think Zoom will also be in a similar boat, why they're in hot water, and how do you get out of that hot water, right? The the people and the data and everything in China. I don't know how you solve the the product problem without M&A. How do you solve that human problem without M&A? We'll see what happens with Zoom, but um, yeah, no, this, uh, the signs are on the wall. This trend is just going to continue happening. And uh, I think, I think Zoom is, is another candidate for that. And, and it makes sense to me why. So, uh, <clears throat> except if you're Larry Summers, you don't think that there's any Chinese espionage going on and you haven't seen any proof of that. And, you know, it's just, oh, I don't know. I, I don't understand why there's a TikTok ban, right? Hmm. Hmm. Yes, you do, Larry. You just don't want to say why. So anyway, on that note, thank you for joining us on Winner Take All, and I will talk to you soon.